This is Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine, and I'm John Wiener. Now it's time to talk about politics and pleasure, about joy as an act of resistance to fascism. For that, we turn to Rebecca Solnit. She's written more than 20 books, including Recollections of My Non-Existence. We talked about it here. She's probably best known as the author of Men Explain Things to Me. She's a regular contributor to The Guardian. She's also written for The New Yorker, The LRB, Harper's, and The Nation. She writes about feminism, climate change, activism, and hope. And now she's got a new book out. It's called Orwell's Roses. It's terrific. We reached her today at home in San Francisco. Hi, Rebecca. Hello, John. Well, in high school, I learned that George Orwell warned against the dangers of totalitarianism in the novels Animal Farm in 1984. And then later, lots of us discovered Homage to Catalonia, his thrilling memoir about fighting fascism in the Spanish Civil War and then fighting Stalinism as a leftist. But your new book about him begins... In the spring of 1936, a writer planted roses. You went to England more than 70 years later to see if you could find any trace of those rose bushes. Please explain why you wanted to do that. I actually was looking for fruit trees. My dear friend, the filmmaker Sam Green, thought he might do something about trees Maybe we might do something together. He was very interested in trees planted by distinguished people. And I mentioned that Orwell had planted fruit trees, which I knew from his wonderful essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray, and where he talks about how the planting of a tree, particularly a long-lived hardwood tree, will probably outlive anything else you do, good or evil, and talks about planting apples and other fruit trees and roses and going back 10 years later after he no longer lived there and seeing them all flourishing and reflecting on that. So I actually went to where he had planted those things, thinking I was on an errand for my friend. The lovely people who lived there invited me in, delivered the bad news that the fruit trees had been cut down in the 90s to expand the garden shed. And then after I'd hung out a while, because they were very hospitable, they said, oh, but you know, his roses are still growing. Would you like to see them? And oh my God, would I? And I realized, so I'd known the essay, A Good Word for the Vicar of Bray for probably 35 years at that point. I read it in my very early 20s, but never thought hard enough about what does it mean that our great prophet of totalitarianism, our great anti-fascist, you know, this man who devoted himself so brilliantly to fighting authoritarianism, but also corruption and lies on the left and propaganda that he also had planted roses. And it felt like there was some wonderful set of questions about pleasure and joy and beauty and the natural world as they relate to a committed life, one particular committed life. But for any of us who are trying to live one or well, kind of flushed out of the undergrowth, some really interesting things to think about. And so I was off and running. Well, I think about roses, or I thought about roses, as a consumer product, something we're supposed to give to our Valentine on Valentine's Day, sold in every supermarket every day of the year, a dozen roses for $12. I thought of them as part of traditional femininity, pink and pretty and delicate and domestic. 
But then you mentioned in this book that you found wild roses growing high in the Himalayas at 12,000 feet when you went hiking there. You were part of a team delivering basic health care. That was one of my all-time favorite pieces of yours. And here you call the roses of Dolpo heroic and supremely tough. That made me think about roses in a different way. Yeah, roses grow in a whole lot of places on most of the continents. They are very tough plants. And so in Dolpo, which is the Tibetan plateau on the Nepal side of the border, where I went on a couple of medical missions in 2015 and 17, you would get up really high, well above 10,000 feet, some of the highest communities in the world, very stark, overgrazed, et cetera. And the last green thing you would see were these huge rose bushes, the size of a, you know, a Volkswagen perhaps, or, <laughs> or thereabouts often. And I was there in the fall, so there were no flowers there, but they were covered in beautiful crimson rose hips. And they were sort of so cheerful and alive and so tough to be growing where nothing else could grow. They were just remarkable. I've seen roses in the subarctic growing wild. I've seen them growing wild in the California uh, countryside and mountains and the English countryside. And they are really tough plants. And part of why there's this huge, horrific rose industry, a kind of rose factory business or rose macchiadoras outside Bogota in Colombia is because roses are tough, durable flowers. You can cut them and pack them outside Bogota, rush them to a 747. And because I visited one of those rose plantation come factories, I know that a 747 can carry 1.6 million roses. They land in Miami, the refrigerated flowers are rushed into refrigerated trucks and driven to all your Trader Joe's and florists and supermarkets, et cetera. And they're just it's so alienated. I know uh, sweatshop labor producing industrialized flowers carried on 747s. When you give your love a rose, you, you want it to be about love and gardens and all these things we want to associate with roses. And so going to Columbia to look at them as part of this process of thinking about Orwell and roses was also a way of asking a really big question. What do we do about things that might be aesthetically pleasurable and ethically hideous? And what were Orwell's aesthetics and how did they relate to his ethics? And essentially, in his case, they were very often the same thing. And so, you know, this book literally took me many, many places, um, including Columbia, back to or back to Orwell's garden, you know, into the histories of Stalinism and agronomy and Soviet famines, the origin of the phrase bread and roses and the Spanish Civil War and so much more. We have many things to talk about. You say that when Orwell planted those roses in 1936, it was, you call it, a bet on the future. I guess that's a bet that fascism would be defeated, that he'd be around afterwards to smell the roses but for you, this bet on the future meant meant more than that. Standard image most of us have of Orwell is as this terribly austere, grim, pessimistic guy. 1984 is seen as a very gloomy, pessimistic, doomy book, a book of defeat. And um, 
you know, Orwell kept planting gardens and to plant something is itself a profound gesture of hope. You assume that there is some kind of future. You know, if you plant, you know, annuals, you're just thinking in the spring that maybe there's going to be a fall and you're going to live to see it. But if you plant <laughs> fruit trees, rose bushes, these kind of long-lived things, you're really betting on some deeper time. And what's striking is not only did he plant this first ambitious garden of his in 1936 when he began leading the life he wanted in the country about to get married trying to make his living from writing but so barely doing it he really needed all the vegetables and potatoes and yeah. eggs from his chickens who were laying up to 100 eggs a week which he was also selling to supplement his literary income milk from his goats etc but then 10 years later when he's actually pretty financially successful thanks to the success of Animal Farm. How does he begin writing 1984? He fulfills his longtime dream of moving to an island in the Hebrides, the Isle of Jura, uh, to an old farmhouse and starts a much more ambitious garden come farm, which will ultimately have 16 acres under cultivation for hay plus gardens plus geese plus a couple of cows, I believe a horse, a tractor. So he's really into this stuff and he's actually dying of tuberculosis pretty significantly by the time he's starting this garden in Jura and the hopefulness of it that he's really investing in the future and, you know, moving there because it's a good place to raise his little boy. And then ultimately he's going to die at the beginning of 1950, but die with a fishing rod in his room because he was hoping not to die of that fatal hemorrhage of the lungs from tuberculosis. He was hoping to go recuperate in a sanatorium in Switzerland and maybe get some fishing in. So he's actually fairly hopeful. And the epigraph for this book is from LA's own wonderful Octavia Butler, or should I say Pasadena's, the very act of trying to look ahead to discern possibilities and offer warnings is in itself an act of hope. We've been talking about the roses of the future, but we have friends who say it's wrong for privileged people like us to enjoy the roses of the present when other people can't, while other people suffer and are denied the basics of a human existence. I know you don't agree with that argument, and Orwell didn't either. Yeah, there's the left is so full of puritanical austerities, and Orwell rejected them to enjoy himself, usually in very modest ways. And he wrote a number of wonderful essays in praise of pleasures. He wrote an argument when people said books were luxuries that the working class couldn't afford, comparing the cost of tobacco for a heavy smoker like himself with the cost of books and coming down that, yeah, you could actually have books. Everyone, everyone who could afford cigarettes could afford books. He wrote about the, you know, the pleasures of English food, of flowers, of gardens, of beer, of a good cup of tea, of nursery rhymes, of good, bad books, um, domesticity and things like that. There's a deep sense on the part of the left that somehow, first of all, nobody should ever anything nice until after the revolution. And I'm old enough to remember when people actually thought there would be an after the revolution. We now know there will be no such thing. And so if you have to wait till after the revolution, it's just permanently, you know, put off. But also people who are in concentration camps, refugee camps, people who are facing genocide and torture and starvation 
are not sitting around thinking, I hope some middle-class people in America are being very grim and grumpy on their sofas. <laughs> you know, what they're hoping is that we actually do something for them. They want solidarity. They want attention to their causes. They want defense of their rights. They want they want to live. And then ultimately, they probably want joy and pleasure and beauty in their lives, too. And you do other things with roses in this book, and not just with roses. You write about a 106-acre forest in Utah of quaking aspen trees, which you say share a common root system and makes this a single organism larger than any other on Earth and about 80,000 years old. This is just astounding and, and wonderful, and it does suggest something about survival of the fittest and that evolution is not just a competition among individuals for domination and supremacy. There's also cooperation and mutuality and, and sharing a common root system. One of the really exciting things happening in our time is that all the capitalist frameworks for understanding human evolution, society, economic success, but also the natural world are crumbling because they were never very accurate or true. And we're finding as we look harder at what makes societies and economies work, at human nature itself, um, from everything from neurobiology to studying uh, you know, toddlers' responses to, you know, all this other stuff is that essentially it's all mutual aid, cooperation, interdependence, um, that we survive by our connections to each other, not our competitions with each other. You can see it in a lot of subtle ways in how people are rethinking our social systems and et cetera, all the wonderful ways young people are just not so thrilled with capitalism as some of us older people haven't been, et cetera. But yeah, this is also very much a book in which plants have a big role. We live in a world made by plants, which sequestered so much of the carbon in the atmosphere to create our modern atmosphere, the lovely world we evolved on. What it means to extract and burn fossil fuels is you're taking that carbon that plants buried hundreds of millions of years ago, and throwing it back into the sky where it heats everything up and makes it all chaotic. We're basically at war with plants and it's a really bad idea. Orwell went straight from the coal mines that fueled England's great power, its industrial revolution to planting his own garden. And of course he wasn't thinking about climate change because it was 1936, but you can see in that planting the garden, his trying to be on the side of plants and having some intuition that plants are actually very political and powerful beings, as well as something he loved a lot. There's this very funny moment where a woman reader at the Socialist Magazine Tribune writes in to chastise him that flowers are bourgeois. <laughs> it's exactly that kind of prim, uptight, leftist stuff that Orwell and I don't love. But also it's like, do you, are you think, do you think flowers are merely decorative? Almost everything we eat is either flowering plants or animals that fed on flowering plants, unless you're eating seaweed, mushrooms, or fish. Plants made this world. They made the atmosphere. They're still sequestering about two-fifths of the carbon we're pumping into the atmosphere. Plants are really powerful forces. They're kind of fellow beings who matter a lot. And I was also trying to think about what does it mean to write about a politics that doesn't exclude 
the plant kingdom or the natural world and looking at the plant controversies in Orwell's time, uh, the fact that Stalin was deeply anti-Darwinist, that part of the Soviet Union's uh, food crises were due to bad science, uh, a lot of it around wheat and bread and grain growing, as well as the war against the kulaks of Ukraine. So yeah, so this is a book about Orwell and about roses and about Orwell's roses. I'd also like to ask you about 1984, which I wrote a paper about my senior year of high school. You know, Big Brother and the Thought Police and the Ministry of Truth and Newspeak. You recently reread the book. What did you find in it now? I was fascinated to find a book that felt so different than what I remembered. First of all, Winston is a rebel against Big Brother and the totalitarian regime he finds himself under, but he doesn't successfully topple the regime. He only briefly tries to join an insurrection that turns out to be a trap. So he doesn't do anything really practical. What he does is he becomes the person that the party doesn't want you to be. He attempts to preserve memory, to determine what really happened in history. He seeks out sensual pleasure from a love affair to just the everyday pleasure of writing your thoughts with an ink pen on a beautiful, uh, on beautiful paper in an old book he's bought in an antique store in a district he shouldn't have been in in the first place, a proletarian district. He doesn't think the thoughts he's supposed to think. In a way, 1984 isn't about what is totalitarianism. It's about what is totalitarianism trying to destroy. And in a sense, how do we resist it? We resist it, Orwell and Winston Smith seem to say, by being the people totalitarianism doesn't want us to be. Orwell says in that book, the final order of the party was to not believe the evidence of your eyes and ears or to ignore the evidence of your eyes and ears. Therefore, firsthand empirical experience in the life of your of the senses helps build the independent, grounded person who can think, think and judge for themselves. That's not who they want you to be. And you could apply this to Trumpism because the Trump people have turned out to be 40 million people who will believe whatever you want them to believe about abortion, pandemics, climate, elections, you name it. And um, Hannah Arendt says something very similar, that the ideal subject of totalitarianism is he for whom the difference between truth and falsity no longer matters. So making that difference really matter, um, you know, paying attention to that difference being careful with those things, as Timothy Snyder in the present would remind us, is a really important act in our time where we face similar things. And so you can see Winston Smith engaging in these acts of trying to form a self, and ultimately he's defeated. Big Brother bursts in, the thought police burst into the room in which he's having his love affair with Julia and carry him away and torture him and brainwash him and turn him into a broken husk of a human being. But what was also striking on this last reading was that Winston regularly says, if there's hope, it lies in the proles. I think a lot of people misread the book by saying, well, Winston is defeated, therefore there's no hope. But Winston himself three times sees this stout middle-aged woman singing in a beautiful voice a sentimental song while hanging out diapers. I think that she's the proles where hope lies. And there's two things 
things that are truly striking about her. First is that Orwell, who's not always been that good with women, although there's a lot of strong women in his books, sees her, describes her almost as a goddess. She might have been hanging out those diapers for a thousand years. She seems to be inexhaustibly powerful with the song. She's thinking about love and the past, you know, having these emotions and thoughts you're not supposed to have with the diaper. She's committing to the future, like planting a tree. So she seems like this great beacon of hope. And then just before the thought police break in, this thing that was absolutely stunning for me reading this book one more time happens. He looks at her, sees that she, this stout, coarsened, reddened, middle-aged woman is beautiful. And he thinks to himself, why should the rose be less beautiful than the rose? And so this is a rose metaphor at the very heart of 1984. Winston somehow has flowers in his head on more than that Orwell does. And it reminds me of one of my dearly hold, held tenets that we need the natural, not only for physical survival, not only for the spiritual sustenance, but it furnishes our imaginations. We think in metaphors. Most of our metaphors are drawn from the embodied, spatial, natural world of plants and animals and plowing and reaping and all those things. And so somehow in knowing roses, Winston, but really Orwell has found a way to understand beauty and the power of this woman. And that's the very centermost essence at the heart of 1984. And it was a shock to find, a wonderful shock, a kind of buried treasure in the book that I could read a different way because I had found a different Orwell and recognized he wasn't this grim, austere, pessimistic person at all. We have to talk about homage to Catalonia. Reading it for the first time in my 20s was a, a huge thing. And now I know from your book that it was for you too. What was it about homage to Catalonia that made it so important? For me, it was a really vivid firsthand description of being in moments when history was being made, what it looks like from the bottom up, from the trenches. What it meant for me when I was young, and it greatly influenced my second book, Savage Dreams, was you could be passionately committed to a cause while seeing it so close up, you saw its flaws and imperfections and ridiculousnesses, and that didn't deter you. Orwell saw how poorly trained most of the Spanish he was fighting with were, what a lost cause it was. And then in a much more serious way, he came to understand he wasn't fighting in a two-sided war, fascism versus anti-fascism. He was in a three-sided war. There were the fascists, the um, party of General Franco backed by Mussolini and Hitler. But the so-called loyalists were really two factions at war with each other. One of them was all these non-aligned leftists that Orwell was with, Trotskyists and general purpose socialists and trade unionists and anarchists and etc. And then there were the Soviet aligned communists. Stalin didn't want a revolution in Spain. He wanted to repress it and he wanted to control what was happening. And so ultimately the party Orwell was with was hunted and demonized the party line of good communists writing in the communist worker newspaper in England, as well as some of the Spanish newspapers, with, that they were secretly traitors in league with the fascists, etc. Orwell 
had to escape Spain, you know, under fear of death because of who he'd been fighting with as an anti-fascist. The leader of his group, the POUM, was captured, tortured, and assassinated. And so, yeah, so the Spanish Civil War, I think, is about valor, about what it means to live in revolution, about disillusionment, about good reporting, about trying to understand the big picture while also being deeply grounded in firsthand experience. And it's such a powerful book, which got very little traction in its own time. It sold very few copies. It pissed a lot of people off because most people who are supposed to be the left were loyal to the Soviet Union. Um, some of them because they didn't know what the Soviet Union and Stalin were doing. Some of them, to my shock in some ways, when I came much closer and deeper into it, writing this book, perfectly okay with Stalin sending hundreds of thousands of people to gulags, torturing, terrorizing, repressing the truth, betraying the revolution by becoming an absolute dictator in a reign of terror. And uh, that was so much part of the book, was looking at that and looking at how the left in Orwell's time was so often just fine with human rights uh, with human rights violations and the ultimate hierarchy that is authoritarianism. There are echoes of it in our time with the creepy people who support, um, you know, Vladimir Putin, Assad in Syria, and who have supported a number of other dictators because they're anti-American or officially socialist. But I digress. <laughs> Orwellian is a very familiar term of, of political description. What, what exactly does it mean today? I think when people say it, they mean something that's sinister, creepy, and also hypocritical, deceptive, manipulative, etc. And to say, for a powerful person to say one thing when they know the truth is another is often called Orwellian. Surveillance systems from Google to the Chinese government are Orwellian. To me, the most Orwellian thing going right now is Donald Trump, who's been arguing ever since Election Day that Joe Biden did not win the 2020 election. And virtually every Republican office holder and millions of Republican voters are saying the same thing. And there's one more thing that makes Orwell important, you've argued. One of the things Orwell teaches us is you need to know what you're against. And, you know, if you're going to be an activist, a political writer, an organizer, an anti-fascist, you need to know your enemy. But you need to know what you're for. And he was not only trying to fight for a world in which everybody would have bread and roses, but to enjoy him himself in the present, which I think partly was pacing himself, taking care of himself so he could be the great anti-fascist, the great political thinker he was, but also... It was a spur to the imagination. It was a grounding in the tangible empirical world so you wouldn't get lost in the swirls of information and disinformation. But it was also always staying in touch of, with what he was for, what he wanted for everyone, and in various mostly modest ways secured for himself and just the pleasures of everyday life and the natural world in the garden. Rebecca Solnit's wonderful new book is Orwell's Roses. Rebecca, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. What a pleasure, John. Thank you so much. 
You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.